0: My plan is to present a quite simple, but at the same time, profound teaching the Buddha gave to his little son. You may be aware that um, the Bodhisattva left the palace life and made the great renunciation, mahabhinikama on the very same day, they say traditionally, when his young son was born, Rahula. And because he recognized, as he already it was a prince, he had the most beautiful wife and he felt if he now has a son, the attachment may become too strong. And he was contemplating already. And then when the child was born, he set off. This later, and dramatized in this the heartbreaking scene where he still sneaks in and sees his wife sleeping and holding the little son but uh, her hand is covering his face in, a, in her sleep but he doesn't dare not to take her hand away that he can see his son and then so he just leaves. However then it takes you know, about six years till uh, he attains Samasambodhi under the Bodhi tree and then some more time uh, till he first returns to his hometown. and her first return to the hometown Venerable, or well, not yet Venerable, his little son, Wahula uh, gets ordained and becomes the first samanera, the first novice monk at the age of seven years. And now we can uh, see we still have a uh, record of quite a few teachings uh, the Buddha has given to his own little son, <laughs> starting at uh, seven years of age. Obviously you can't give. Not the same kind of complicated teachings like you can give to uh, educated adults, it has to be in you know, a simple. And when the became the first of those uh, you know, desirous of training Sikkha Karma of all the disciples or the monk disciples of the Buddha, he was the foremost you know, who really strove to take on any instructions of the Buddha and it was very successful and when he turned 20 uh, the Buddha gave him the final teachings leading him to the full attainment of Nibbana. But this is an early stage and according to the commentaries little novice Venerable Rahula was only about 7 years old quite shortly after his ordination. It's in the Matrimal Nikaya Are you all familiar? One of the uh, four Nikayas, five Nikayas and uh, the Middle-length Discourses in number 61, Ambalatika Rahula Sutta. Advice to Rahula at Ambalatika. I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but we start from the beginning. Thus have I heard... On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrels' sanctuary, Uh, the famous Veluvanna, the first monastery offered to the Buddha by King Bimbisara in the capital of Magadha, Rajagaha. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Rahula was living at Ambalatika, It's another monastery or another little park not too far away because his uh, preceptor was Venerable Sariputta, the Buddha's chief disciple. Uh, The Buddha asked his chief disciple to become the preceptor for his son. Then when it was evening, the Blessed One rose from meditation and went to the Venerable Rahula at Ambalatika. Uh, typically after the meal and all the activity around the meal were finished, you know, the Buddha would uh, retire in the afternoon to a quiet place where he would develop bhavana, meditating. But then in the evening, coming out of meditation, he would uh, often make himself you know, available again for teaching. The Venerable Rahula saw the Blessed One coming in the distance and made his seat ready, and set out water for washing the feet." Traditional acts of uh, respect to a teacher or senior, having a seat ready in a high seat, higher than one's own, and uh, setting out the water, and then usually even washing the feet, also receiving rope and bowl. The Blessed One sat down on the seat, made ready, and washed his feet. Venerable Rahula paid homage to him and sat down at one side. Then the Blessed One left a little water in the water vessel, the one for washing the feet. So he left a little bit in there and shouted to Venerable Rahula and asked him, Rahula, do you see this little water left in the jug? Yes, Venerable Sir, even so little Rahula, such a little left over, is the recluseship of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. As someone who has no conscience, someone who has no shame who feels no shame about telling a de- deliberate lie. Then the monkhood of that kind of person is like this little bit of water left over in the vessel for rinsing the feet. We can imagine a wise Buddha teaching like that. Uh, uh, if we have experienced you know, little kids, come seven years, can easily happen that they tell things which are not quite true. Ne? That age is one of the learning processes for kids, ne? that they understand what constitutes a lie, and that one should actually not tell a lie, and that one should speak only what is true. So we imagine that he probably did say something that was not truthful. Then the Blessed One threw away the little water that was left. Pop, chucking it out completely, and asked the Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see that little water that was chucked out and thrown away now? Yes, Venerable Sir. Even so, Rahula, those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have thrown away their recluseship, have thrown away their monkhood, their holy life. Then the Blessed One turned the water vessel upside down. It's actually beautiful to see you know, how the Buddha teaches very simple and very practically, you know, using whatever is available. one you know, came here to wash his feet anyhow, you know, you know, using these simple powerful similes to teach him now about not lying. So he turns the water vessel upside down. and asked Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see this water vessel turned upside down? Yes, Venerable Sir. Even so, Rahula, those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have turned their recluse ship upside down. They have turned their monkhood upside down. Then the Blessed One turned the water vessel wide way up again and ask Venerable Vahule. Vahule, do you see this hollow, empty water vessel? Yes, Venerable Sir. <laughs> Even so holy, hollow and empty Rahule is the recluse ship of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. Suppose Rahula, there was a royal tusker elephant with tusk as long as chariot poles, full grown in stature, hybrid and accustomed to battle. In ancient India the armies had uh, war elephants, sometimes the biggest armies, thousands of them. So you can imagine the cavalry is already very powerful and horse, but if you yeah, have very trained you know, war elephants, the you know, charging is you know, the most powerful weapon in ancient Indian battle and uh, again it's very beautiful how he uses simile you know, that are probably appealing to a seven year old boy particular one you know, coming from the you know, katya, the warrior caste, you know, the aristocratic caste you know, that is what they were doing, you know, training for for war I can remember when I was young, uh, my age, and it wasn't so much uh, war elephants no, but whatever, and the tanks and these little plastic models of uh, warplanes and battleships and so on. It seems to be fairly typical for young boys. So the Buddha uses something that he can really relate to as a seven-year-old, newly ordained young boy no, from the uh, royal aristocratic no, Katya caste were usually in the train to be great warriors. And now, this battle elephant, the tusker, in battle he would perform his task with his forefeet and his hind feet, you know, fighting by it and the trampling the troops, with his forequarters and his hindquarters, with his head and his ears, with his tusks and his tail. Yet he would keep back his trunk. So even if this war elephant is fighting in battle now using his tusk and every part of his body, he would protect his trunk. Why would he do that? Hmm? Yeah, breathing and he couldn't live without that thing. it has got only one and they use it for breathing and for drinking and for eating. And the elephant instinctively knows know, if that gets uh, cut or severely damaged know, he will not be able to survive and it's quite uh, sensitive it's not so easy know, to uh, kill an elephant They're very thick skin and so on, very big know, but the trunk is know, um, know, in danger can, can be injured and uh, then it's over and he will not be able to survive so even when he's fighting and, uh, he will still protect it Then his wider, the mahout would think, this royal tusk elephant with tusk as long as chariot poles, performs his task in battle with his whole body, everything, yet he keeps back his trunk. He has not yet given up his life. Because you can imagine at some stage they just go berserk. And if he gets completely angry and loses control, then then he just charges and doesn't care about anything. But when the royal tusker elephant you know, is fighting in battle with all parts of his body, with his tusk and his tail and also with his trunk, you know, maybe grabbing enemy soldiers with a trunk and peering them up and dumping them, then the mahout would think This royal Tusker elephant is using his whole body to fight in battle, and now he's also using the trunk. He has given up his life. Now there's nothing this royal Tusker elephant would not do. He will just shout, doesn't matter whether they have no spears or he doesn't care about anything, he just charges. So too, Rahula, when someone is not ashamed, someone doesn't feel conscience or shame about telling a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that this person is unable to do. Therefore, Vahole, you should train thus I will not utter a falsehood, even as a joke. That's a powerful simile, ne? a very frightening statement. Because now the Buddha doesn't even talk about just recluseship and the monkhood being destroyed. Now this is a general statement now for anyone, not just monks. So too, Bahula, as someone who feels no shame, no conscience about telling a deliberate lie, there's no evil that this person is unable to commit. So it shows now the importance of truthfulness. And uh, it's important to understand uh, that statement correctly. The Buddha doesn't say that anyone who lies there's no evil that person couldn't do. Because uh, it would be very hard to find a single person who has never ever lied. Uh, Very, very uh, very difficult, it would be very special. So if he was to say that anyone who lies there's no evil that they can't commit, that would basically apply to virtually everyone. But the point here is to deliberately lie and not feeling shame about it. Having no conscience, that is what is often called a psychopathy. A psychopath is known that they are lacking this sense of conscience and shame. It's one reason that they can't accept uh, lie detectors for... um, evidence in quotes, usually, because they often work quite well. But they don't work for a true psychopath who has no shame about lying, because they don't feel anything about lying, and then the lie detector will not uh, register anything, because if they have no shame, no conscience, they can lie through their teeth, and there's no wise in blood pressure, there's no wise in... Uh, body electricity on the skin, or sweating, or anything because they don't feel anything. But no, the dangerous thing is that no, once they don't feel anything about deliberate lying no, then there's also no uh, restraint anymore. No, they may commit any kind of evil. This is corroborated no, in other parts of the canon. There's no, Dhammapada verse number 176. No ekang dhammang ati musava dasa tantuno no vitin paralokas nati pāpang akaryang It's basically the same statement. And having transgressed one law, one dhamma, uh, namely lying without regard, vitin paralokas without regard for the other world, for the future rebirth, without regard for the uh, karmic consequences. It's a kind of a different way of expressing the same thing. Someone has no shame, no conscience, someone lies and has no worries at all, no uh, fear, no conscience about what may be the karmic consequences, what may that do karmically for the next life. And again this person, Papang Akaryang, there's no evil, that no, they might not do. Now the Buddha continues no, instructing his son to be very careful about no, any action by speech. And one should no, reflect before one speaks. One should reflect while one speaks. And one should no, reflect after one has spoken, the same with bodily action, always to reflect, there's not enough time to go through the whole thing, but I just wanted to make this point, because today is also the oppositor, many of you have taken the precepts. And I'm not sure no, do you find it very easy to always keep the precepts immaculate, impeccable, perfect? In particular, do you find it easy to keep the fourth precept? It's quite a tricky one. It can easily some exaggeration, some white lie, some polite lie and so on. It can easily slip some joking. No fight not no falsehood even in joking And it's important that we at least preserve you know, that sense of shame and Again, it doesn't mean someone can do any evil just because they lie But the tricky thing that it becomes really extremely dangerous you know, if we start losing awareness that we are lying and uh, that can happen with people can become so habitual and so natural for some people that the sense of shame is lost and may not appear that it's so serious. But the simile the Buddha has given to his son, I believe, are sufficient. Imagine this war elephant fighting in war and then completely losing it and going berserk, wanting a as they say without any regard for anything and like that and there's a kind of psychopathic person who has no shame about lying so he can draw the influence you know, that we should develop shame and conscience the hiri words in Pali for a you know, kind of moral fear, fear of wrongdoing for what we call in the shame and uh, conscience because that faculty is usually there in human beings. It's amazing that we we just straight away, actually, we, we know when we do something which is no good or wrong or harmful. Yes, this amazing faculty of conscience and shame and we feel embarrassed and ashamed about it. And these are qualities in which we should support and foster and strengthen and and build up shame and conscience. Particular about lying, but it's also uh, helpful for uh, assessing other people. You <laughs> may remember we talked at noon about um, how can we discern truth, how can we discern uh, the fake news and facts? And everything that uh, can be misleading if you have just faith in something or if you just like it or if it's just reasonable, or if it just has great authority, um, powerful people in the governments, huge institutions, people with professor and doctor degrees, and this is authority, but it can still be wrong. And one way we can discern truth is by investigating the person who is making the statement investigating the person who is claiming this is a fact or is putting out that data or is putting out that paper who advances that theory who brings up a certain opinion who has gotten a certain dogma or doctrine and is claiming that only this is it all else is nonsense and sometimes it's helpful rather than trying to uh, look at the content of what this person is advocating, advancing, claiming of what that institution, or that government, or that powerful person, or that celebrity uh, whatever worldly uh, powers and qualifications they may have rather than looking at the content which may well appear very logical, or very rational, or very likable by convincing the look at the person where it came from and if that person is corrupt, if that institution is corrupt then naturally whatever they're putting out may also be corrupt And a good one, uh, if you notice that someone is lying without shame I wouldn't trust any of the data, information, theories, spiritual teaching, whatever they put out this is a disqualifying quality. Of course, uh, it is difficult to tell whether they have shame or not. That one is a little bit tricky. It's even not easy to tell whether something is a lie. Even that can sometimes be not so easy to discern. But uh, that may be still possible. But to 100% know whether someone has no shame, no conscience about lying, that would require a, uh, strong psychic powers. But one can sometimes also draw some influences. And uh, Some people, if someone lies very habitually, or a lot, or really big, and then denies it later, and, uh, can indicate they can't be in the too much shame, and they never apologize later for lying. And I'm sometimes surprised. Now, some people seem to take it a little bit like playing roulette in the casino and one one table is already five-time red. So then people think, oh, it's already five-time red and now I put lots of money on black. Which is actually also a fallacy you know, because the chances are exactly the same. Even after it has come five or ten times, it's still at 50-50 or a little less because the zero is green. But so it seems. Some people seem to think that if someone has lied to me five times already, then probably the sixth time now they're speaking the truth. (laughs) I I wouldn't I wouldn't argue like that. So if you want to check out the reliability of a spiritual teacher in particular, but also the reliability of any uh, institution or anyone whether they are famous or powerful, whether they have big degrees and doctor degrees, whether they are having a huge uh, following of disciples. All this doesn't necessarily matter so much, but if you notice the huge character flaws, the signs of greed, hatred and delusion, then whatever comes out from that source is kind of polluted and not reliable. It's like if you have a stream, a river, and and that stream is uh, uh, completely polluted, dirty, rotten, stinky, toxic, and that stream is flowing into a big pond. So if you have a rotten, polluted, dirty, toxic stream flowing into a pond, is a pond likely to be pure, Sweet water, limpid, clear, unpolluted, probably not so this is how you look at causality. If you look at a certain teaching, a certain claim, a theory, a supposed fact, when you look at the person who is putting it out, and many times it's of of uh, maybe not so easy in the tour discern whether that person has greed, hate, or delusion, or whether they have um, mindfulness, compassion, wisdom, understanding, calm, peace, and so on. But a good giveaway for disqualification is lying. I mean, any form of lying is no good. And if I ask even indications that they don't seem to have even shame or conscience about it, For example, continue lying or not apologizing once they get caught out in lying, and so on. I think that's a good indication. And if you have someone where you can see in the long term a high level of truthfulness, high level of reliability, trustworthiness, then whatever they put out, whatever data facts, whatever spiritual teaching, uh, for me it would be immediately, I would give it much, much more weight. I would be much more willing to listen, I would be much more willing to take it in. A so, few reflections i like to offer from number 61 in the on the Ambalatika Rahulavada, the Buddha admonishing his little son not to get into lying, to maintain truthfulness and in particular that very frightening powerful statement someone who has no shame and conscience about deliberate lying has no evil that this person is incapable of doing. So uh, if you notice that in anyone it's good to keep away and not to buy into whatever they try to Tell us and secondly, in a very important, we have to keep away from that ourselves. and we have to develop that quality of shame and conscience and a fear of wrongdoing fear of lying and make that very strong and then we have to based on that maintain our truthfulness as good as we can, whatever happens. Have you ever investigated at what level are you willing to let go of truthfulness? How much pressure do you need? So I'm pointing a gun at you, or just some social pressure, just some sparing some embarrassment, just avoiding some awkward situation. It's quite amazing if you investigate you know, how easily one may be willing to sacrifice truthfulness for something which we may consider more important at that moment. And one thing I particularly notice you know, is uh, social pressure. The ones, everyone says A, but you feel convinced you now is actually B. Would you still dare to say B, (laughs) or would you just go with A, and then you're fine? i always admired that people who are willing to stand for truth, even if the truth is not always necessarily popular. Celebrities are popular, but are they always truthful? It's not the same. Any comments or questions? because ego. Yeah, yeah, They're trying to lie and the ego may get hurt. Uh, embarrassment usually. Well, oh, I didn't do that because if I admit I did do that, that's so embarrassing. But if we maintain ego by lying, then we have a double bad deal we get all the bad karma for lying and uh, we maintain an ego which is only a burden and another source of suffering because ego is uh, a delusion truth is anatta and not self, not me, not mine so it would be uh, a very uh, foolish thing to do uh, to sacrifice truthfulness uh, to maintain our self of the ego our sense of Ego and self, because ego and selfness, is a delusionary edifice which is only a huge weight on us and a burden and a source of suffering. Or sometimes even just getting attention. Some people invent marvelous stories, suppose, what they have done, uh, chatting up someone from the opposite gender and. Telling all kinds of big stories, tall tales, as they say, and just to impress others. That would be maybe a good example for ego uh, when I was hunting lions in the Congo and <laughs> with my bare hands and blah, 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 no. tall tales, no, that's just for an ego, just for catching intention, just for being admired. Just for getting finally a tweet which gets more than a thousand likes or gets retweeted more than a thousand times. And for that no, they're willing to to lie. Because they may be popular. Yes. Someone is just mentioning, in a particular, uh, in a less developed country like uh, Myanmar, having to do uh, paperwork there, dealing uh, with uh, government and applications. Uh, and it feels almost like you have to lie when you fill that in. It's something I can relate to, uh, because uh, as monks, what we sometimes have to do is the uh, visa applications. Uh, but however, and as a monk, I, I don't see any opportunity no, to be other than truthful. and it can be quite tough, no, because often, as you say, no, everyone seems to be lying there anyhow, no, and now suddenly you fill it all in, no, whether it's a building application, whether it's a visa application, and you maintain 100% truthfulness. However, I have also made good experiences with that. And so far, no, all visa application I have done myself, no, and truthful, and it all worked out, I and mean, we always got it, and sometimes you may even uh, state it openly. In our case, it was a, a monk who was sent to uh, Singapore for a mon- monastery for teaching, and they were asking about drug use. Oh no, sorry, they were asking about the conviction. Oh, yeah, and he, ha- he had a conviction. Uh, he had a conviction for possession with intent to stay. That is a an uh, illegal drug in Australia and uh, the police had some evidence that he was not even using it only for himself but that he intended uh, to sell it, which was basically drug dealing, although it was on a very uh, uh, small level. But back in lay life, not as a monk, he had that and uh, of course uh, some people recommended to him that don't put that in the application, you don't get your visa to go to Singapore. But uh, he put it in uh, honestly and uh, in the end uh, they actually succeeded in getting it and explaining that it was only small in all the circumstances and that he had completely given up any drugs and not even a drop of alcohol since he was a monk. Another monk uh, for a visa application in the country uh, for the health test, he was also asked whether he had ever used drugs and he had. (laughs) And said, I grew up in Los Angeles and, and this is what we all did. And and so he op- openly, honestly, answered that no, to this lady doctor. She immediately said to him, I have to inform you, no, this may influence your visa decision, you may not get your visa. But he felt no, he couldn't lie on that. So he openly said it. And then maybe put an attachment, where he explained, and that was when I was young and foolish and uh, I learned better later. And since I'm a monk, I haven't done anything and he still got his uh, permanent residence in that country. So I've heard sometimes an amazing stories so, how uh, you can get through with truthfulness. I'm not sure that will always work in Myanmar, but uh, this is one example where I say you know, it becomes interesting is one willing to let go of truthfulness. I mean obviously you, uh, how to say, you also have to be a little bit smart. No? You, You can still present things in a certain way. You can emphasize one thing and de-emphasize something else. So that is not uh, lying. But uh, from my experience, even if you have to be totally truthful there, uh, you may still get through, particularly once you adjust your life to that. If you live your life in a very truthful way, then the problem is usually not so big anymore because there's no clash anyhow. But I must admit that no, there can be situations particular some of this stuff may be self-contradictory in the forms even. It's almost impossible no, to do it 100% truthfully because it may, may be inconsistent and self-contradictory. So not, not so easy, that one. But if in doubt, I would rather be on the side of truthfulness. Hmm. Like uh, the refugee status, a lot of people, like, like Sri Lanka, when they had this law, like, can they, they'll go in front of a burnt house and burnt
1: cars and take photographs.
0: I think the argument there is that the the end justifies the means and this is so important for me that I get accepted as a refugee or as an asylum seeker that the means lying is justified. But you're on a slippery slope once you go that track you will always have some supposedly noble and very important end objective for which then you feel it justifies that I lie now because it's something uh, good and noble maybe what I want to achieve. Uh, the Buddha has never indicated that uh, he would accept that at all. doesn't matter what is your noble motive for lying, so to speak. You can have the, you can imagine it to have the most noble aims there or the most important things you want to achieve which is supposedly so important for so many people and the Buddha never accepted that that would uh, justify lying or give you an excuse for breaking the fourth precept. The Buddha never accepted that that would uh, justify lying or give you an excuse for breaking the fourth precept. But of course no, it may require a heroic and uh, um, absolutely admirable commitment to truthfulness to really do that in all circumstance. Uh.